podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. Today is Wednesday, the 6th of October. We're brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, a virtual privacy network, allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geoblocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Check out LibertyShield.com and use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And do remember to check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Just download that Etsy app to your phone. You should have it anyway. There's lots of great stuff there. Um, Before I get going, Fox Haunt are the name of the band that give me the title music. If anyone likes that song, go check them out. At Fox Haunt Band, I think they are on Twitter. Really nice bunch of lads. And I think it's it's a cracking tune. They've got some really good tunes up on their Spotify. So if you look on Spotify, you'll find them there. Anyway, folks, let's get into today's show. First of all, apologies for yesterday. Uh, I think I referred to Claudia Ranieri as Carlo Ranieri about 15 times. Uh, so thank you to Nick Turner for uh, pointing that out to me. I realized as I was doing it, but didn't realize how bad it was till I listened back to it. Uh, so, yeah, apologies for that. Um, right. Today, a couple of things I want to get to. First things first, Jamie O'Hara, who's. He's not a dreadful pundit, but he's not a good pundit either, but he's on talk sport. And we all know that the purpose of talk sport is not so much to talk sport, but it's. It's verbal clickbait. They want you going out of your mind on social media, sharing their clips and getting them more attention. And they're told, say outlandish things from time to time. They have to be. There's no other way these people would come out with these statements. But Jamie O'Hara came out with the statement that the Premier League should be reduced to 18 teams. And this is an idea that's been floated before. He's not new to this. It's something that was suggested during Project Big Picture. It's something that I think would have potentially happened if the Super League had gone ahead to keep the big clubs interested. And there is merit to the idea. But there's also a lot of reasons not to do it. And there's also a level of respect you have to take towards the clubs who currently compete in the Premier League. So O'Hara's exact words were, get rid of the dross. And I just found that really disrespectful. Look, when you're a fan and you're 
having a bit of a laugh and you're talking about your club or whatever, you might refer to other clubs as dross or whatever. That's fine. When you're a pundit, when you're being paid to go on air and give opinion and give insight, you just can't refer to any club as the dross. Now, my assumption is, based on what he said, he was kind of looking at the current Premier League table and referring to, you know, Norwich, for example, or a Newcastle or a Burnley or a Watford or whoever. Clubs that he deems not worthy of being in the Premier League. There's two problems with this. Number one, all of those clubs earn the right to be in the Premier League. Whether they're good enough to stay in the Premier League is a completely different discussion. They were good enough to get into the Premier League. And that in itself is a big achievement. The second issue is you're shutting the door on the lower leagues. People complain about a closed shop with the Premier League. If there's only 18 teams, it becomes even more of a closed shop. Now, how do we get to 18 teams? And some some people have said you just take two teams, just take two teams and drop them into the championship. That, you can't do that. That's not fair. So what you'd have to do is you'd have to relegate four and promote two. So two would come up from the championship. Now, the problem with that is there's a lot of clubs in the championship who spend outlandish amounts of money way outside their means chasing that Premier League dream, knowing that getting into the Premier League elevates the club from a financial perspective to a different stratosphere. You look at what's going on at Derby at the moment. They're in administration. They're... There's a real possibility Derby could disappear if the right owner isn't doesn't come along. There's a real possibility it could happen. We'll all hope it doesn't. You would hope that as a, a big institution as Derby is, with great history, you would hope that there will be buyers or a way to save Derby County. They won't go to the wall, we would hope, the way Macclesfield and Bury did. But we don't know that they won't. Now, Derby have gotten themselves into this position, chasing the Premier League dream, overspending, paying too much on wages, going for big-name managers and paying them huge sums of money. They're obviously not the only club that are in a bad position financially. You look up and down the championship and the clubs that have had financial issues. I mean, Bournemouth are are fortunate in a way they have a very wealthy owner, but they have a huge amount of debt that they carry around. Look what Coventry have been through over the last 10, 15 years. Look what QPR have been through. Blackburn Rovers under the Vanky, slightly different situation, but again, there was a massive period of not spending, trying to recover from a period of overspending. 
Blackpool have had financial problems. Birmingham have had huge financial problems. Hull, Cardiff. These clubs have all had really, really tough times because they've all spent too much money trying to chase promotion. You look the league below, and again, it's the same type of thing. You've got League One clubs overspending, trying to get into the championship because there's more money in the championship. If they can get into the championship and they can establish themselves in the championship, their goal will be to get to the Premier League. Don't ever listen to any club that say that their end game is not to get into the Premier League. Every single club in England wants to be in the Premier League. The fans might not. The fans are a different thing. Some fans just don't have any time for the Premier League. And they prefer the lower leagues. They prefer the Championship or League One and the unpredictability that comes with those divisions. And that's absolutely fine. It's, it's very admirable in a way. But the clubs themselves, the owners, all want to be in the Premier League. You think Gary Neville and his pals are spending a ton of money at Salford for any reason other than knowing if we can get this club into the Premier League, we are going to make a ton of money, either by bringing in that huge Sky money or by selling the club. Because as a Premier League club, it'll have much more value than it did when they bought it. And even when you factor in everything they'll have put into it, they'll make a fortune. Every club wants to be in the Premier League. And if you're going to say that only 18 teams can be in the Premier League, you're taking away the possibility for those clubs to get there. You're taking away the possibility for some of those clubs to survive. I'll be really interested to see what happens with Bournemouth, for example, if they don't come up this season. Now, they've made a great start. Credit to them. 11 games into the championship season. They are top of the league. Three points clear of West Brom. Scotty Twocoats is doing a good job. Maybe championship is his level because he did quite well there, obviously, with Fulham as well. He's just not a Premier League manager. But if they don't come up with, with how recklessly they spent in their last few years in the Premier League, will there be a fire sale? Can they continue to hold on to players who really and truly should be in the Premier League? I know they sold a couple this summer and a couple last summer, but you know the likes of David Brooks can't stay there forever. If you reduce the teams in the Premier League, first of all, you're, you're throwing out two teams, one of whom obviously would have gotten relegated anyway, but one that would not have gotten relegated. If you're going to relegate four the club that finishes fourth from bottom is being really hard done by because to finish fourth from bottom in the premier league is generally quite hard sometimes you'll get a situation where there are three dreadful teams but more often than not it's one or two so to finish 17th you have achieved something you have survived and you've done it on your own merit rather than on the fact that there's three worst teams So to relegate that team and then say to the championship, we're only taking two of your teams this year. Like, what would be the point? And moving on from there in subsequent seasons, what would be the plan? Are you going to relegate three teams and bring up three? 
are you going to relegate two teams and do what they do in the Bundesliga, where the third bottom team will play the fin- team that finishes third? Where does it end? Do we get to a situation where only one club is automatically relegated? And then only one club is guaranteed promotion from the championship? Because that will kill the English football pyramid. That will absolutely... We will see clubs start to go out of business at an incredible rate of knots. Because so many clubs have overspent trying to get there. And the hope is that you get there in the third year of overspending. Because then you won't face the financial fair play penalties that the Football League put in place. Where you can... I think it's you can spend thirty nine million more than you make over three years, something along those lines. But if you get up in the third year, the penalties disappear, and when you come back down, or if you come back down, they're not really going to be all that much to you, considering you'll have made Premier League money for a season plus your parachute payments. I can see the merit in the idea of wanting to make the Premier League more streamlined, a little bit more elite, but it's not always ideal to have elitism, especially not in in football, which is a working class game. I found O'Hara's way of putting it and making the suggestion really distasteful. And I look at clubs like Norwich and look, they don't look good enough to stay in the Premier League. There's no doubt about that, but it's it's admirable how they've gone down, come up, gone down, come up, and continue to do it their way. They haven't broken from their path. They've maintained one idea of how we're going to run this football club. Similarly, on the pitch, they've got a very clear identity of what they want to be on the pitch. They recruit players in a certain way, and they rec- recruit players within a very strict budget, which is often zero sell to buy. Stuart Webber works miracles. So to say to them, well, you don't deserve to be in the Premier League, it's just not, it's not on, it's not right. You look at a club like Burnley, tiny little club, based on size, finances, yeah, they they don't live in the same world as, as even some championship clubs. There are a number of championship clubs bigger than Burnley. But Burnley earned the right to be in the Premier League, and every single season, they earned the right to stay there. After all the work Sean Dyche has done, if they were the team that finished 17th and went down, that just wouldn't be right. And what if that team that finishes 17th finishes 10 points clear of the the three teams that have gone down? I looked at it as him saying that clubs like them don't belong in the Premier League, as he views it. And while he's entitled to his opinion, I'm also entitled to say his opinion's absolute garbage. And I I think he should come out and apologise for the way he framed it. If he wants to put forward a, a good case, a researched reason for reducing the number of teams in the league, how you would go about it, and what it would mean to the rest of English football, I'm sure everybody would be willing to sit and listen. You don't have to agree or disagree, but if it's a reasoned case, if he's actually put time into it, 
fair enough. But don't just dismiss clubs as the dross because you see them as not being good enough because you're an elitist. Don't just do that. It's really out of order. And it takes away a lot of what makes English football different to other leagues, to other countries rather. But it would kill the championship and League One and League Two. If that Premier League dream starts to disappear, because the, the great thing about English football is is the playoffs. Now, I, I dislike the idea of the playoff winner getting a trophy while the team who finished second above them, and oftentimes three or four places above them, gets nothing. I dislike the idea of a trophy for the playoffs, but this idea that a club can make a late run, finish sixth, and go up through the playoffs, it's really exciting. It's unique in football. Take away, and I don't know what we've got left. What have you got left in the championship? There'll always be a couple of clubs who stand out as better than everybody else. Like, for example, when Norwich come down into the championship next season, or if if they come down, but you know, it looks like a when, the likelihood is that they will immediately turn things around and bounce straight back up. So that would be one promotion place gone. Let's say Newcastle get relegated and Mike Ashley just decides enough is enough. I'm going to sell. And they get a real owner in there who's willing to pump in a hundred million and they refurbish this, the team. They get a proper manager in. Well, there's the other position likely gone. If not, you'll get the third team coming down and they're always going to be stronger as well. The teams that come down, will always be stronger than the pre- the teams that are already there because, number one, they will have Premier League players, maybe not a whole team of them, but at least some of them. Number two, they're going to have those parachute payments. So financially, they'll be at a huge advantage over the teams that haven't had the, the luck of going up. What's the point then? If we start the championship season and only two teams are going to go up and you've got two teams coming down who've, as it would be, four teams coming down. Those four teams will start next season at a huge advantage if there's only going to be two promotion spots next season as well, which you'd have to imagine with an 18-team league, it would be two up, two down. So you lose the playoffs or you make the playoffs second through fifth. But even at that, the clubs that come down would all have a huge starting advantage. And the Premier League clubs that have just come down, you like the Sheffield United, who'll still be getting their parachute payments, they'll be at a big advantage as well. Fulham, they'd be at a big advantage. They've got rich owners too. You'd make the the championship very non-competitive. And what makes it great is how competitive and how unpredictable it is. I would rather watch the championship than most of the European leagues. You take out the Bundesliga, La Liga and Serie A and put them to one side with the Premier League. Is there anything then you'd rather watch than the championship? I mean, the Portuguese league, it's 
Porto, it's Benfica. Every so often, Sporting pop up and spring a surprise. The rest, largely average. The French League, it's PSG, it's PSG, it's PSG. Every so often, a Monaco or a Lille come along, win it, and then have to break that team up straight away and can't remain competitive. There's a lot of great players in France, and maybe that is a better league to watch, but it's definitely an argument. Greece, Turkey. Do you rather watch these leagues? I'd rather watch Galatasaray versus Fenerbahce than a championship game, but, you know, there's a lot of unwatchable football in those leagues as well because there's a lot of bad teams, a lot of bad players. If you look at the championship, there's a lot of Premier League caliber players there. And there's a lot of big clubs in the championship. Big, big, proper clubs who've been around, who spent a long time in the top flight. You know, Bournemouth, West Brom, Coventry, Stoke, Fulham, QPR, Huddersfield, Blackburn, Premier League champions. Uh, Reading have been in the Premier League. Blackpool have been in the Premier League. When I was a kid, Luton were in the, the top flight. Sheffield United have just come down. Middlesbrough have had great times in the Premier League. Birmingham have been in the Premier League. Forest are two times winners of the European Cup. Don't tell me they don't belong in the top flight. Uh, Swansea have been in the league. Cardiff, Hull, Barnsley and Derby. They've all been in that top flight. If you look up and down the championship right now, you've got Bristol City, Millwall, I think Luton got relegated before the the foundation of the Premier League. I'm almost certain about that. Uh, Preston and Peterborough. And all the rest have been in the Premier League, and a lot of them have been in the Premier League very recently. And there's big clubs there. Derby are a big club. Cardiff are a big club. Forest, they're not a huge club, but like I said, the two times champions of Europe. Birmingham are a big club. Sheffield United are a big club. I think Borough are a big club. Um, Blackburn, Huddersfield, Stoke. Stoke are a big club. Coventry are a big club. West Brom are a big club. They're not. They're not a big six club. They're not even in that next tier with the likes of Everton, Villa, Newcastle, etc. Leeds. They're, they're a tier below that, but they're still big clubs. They've got big, vibrant fan bases. And they're community clubs as well. They're really important. And with O'Hara's idea, we would probably see more of them go to the wall and we would see communities lose their team. The way Bury did and Macclesfield did. And the thing with community clubs like, like those is if those clubs disappear, well, those people don't want to watch football anymore. They might watch it. They're not going to support it. They're not going to go to games. If it's on TV, they might stick it on, but they're doing that now anyway. But you lose people who are actually invested in the game and interested in the game. If there's a Phoenix club, they might be drawn to that, but Phoenix clubs pop up left and right, and only a handful actually ever really succeed. I think O'Hara needs to apologize for what he said. I think he needs to come out with a better statement about what he means. Uh, We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to take a quick walk down memory lane. See you in a few.
Right, welcome back. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about rivalries in the in football in general, but particularly in the Premier League. And when we think of the rivalries in the Premier League today, you've got your local rivalries. Obviously, you've got United and City. You've got Liverpool and Everton, Tottenham and Arsenal, Chelsea and Arsenal. All of those are geographic. That's what bonds those rivalries. Then you've got Liverpool United. You've got Liverpool City. You've got Liverpool Chelsea. You've got Chelsea United, Chelsea City. They're not geographic. They're based on success, challenging for titles. There's none of them really where there's legitimately bad feeling between the players, between the managers. There's none of those rivalries that, other than when they're playing, you'd imagine the players and the managers sit at home thinking about them too much. You don't imagine there's much ill will between the players of Liverpool and Manchester City. There's a healthy respect. Some of them might dislike some of them because of personality clashes or whatever, but there's no there's no loathing about it. And when those games aren't going on, there isn't a cloud of that rivalry that hangs over the rest of the league that dominates conversation. Because the era of great rivalry, other than Liverpool United is the one that you could maybe argue does. Historically, it's been an incredible rivalry. But in the Premier League era, for far too long, Liverpool were a non-factor. The first time they really challenged for the title was 2002. They didn't do it again until 2009. And then they did it in 2014. Before they finally won it, obviously, in 2020. So through, what, 27, 28 seasons in the Premier League, Liverpool were only really a factor in three of them until they won the title. They weren't good enough on the pitch for the rivalry to matter all that much. Yes, they could upset United, but it would be seen as that. It would be seen as an upset. United went into those games expecting to win them home or away. Liverpool had some strong teams over the years, but United had better teams, better players, better manager, and would run the board and would largely win the title. 13 titles between 93, the first one, or 92, the first one, and the last title under Ferguson in 2013. The real rivalry of the Premier League the greatest rivalry of the Premier League, and one that doesn't really exist anymore except in the minds of of the fan base on one side who are still deluded in thinking that their team is where it once was, was Manchester United and Arsenal. From shortly after Wenger arrived, up until Arsenal built the stadium, so it's about a 10-year stretch, 
that rivalry was all-consuming. The managers disliked each other. They would constantly throw shade on each other in the press. There'd be barbs back and forth. There was mind games. There was this, there was that. The players disliked each other. And there was real individual battles that you would look forward to watching when they would play. And the games were played with a ferocious intensity that just doesn't exist in the game anymore. Now, part of that is the rules of the modern game. Think of Vieira and Keane in midfield, kicking lumps of each other. Neither one willing to take a step back. No quarter asked, none given. We can't have that anymore. You couldn't have Fabinho and Rodri kicking each other up and down the field in the modern game. They'd both be sent off after 15 minutes and it would spoil the game. Think of Gary Neville against Robert Pires. Neville would set out to create needle, to grab at him, to pull him, to kick him, whatever he could do to slow him down. And Pires would set out to embarrass him. You had Van Nistelrooy against Martin Keown. Van Nistelrooy was a machine. Keown was a great defender, massively underrated, who didn't have great pace, wasn't particularly skillful, but knew how to defend and would use every single tool available to him to get the better of the opposition striker, whether it was pulling his shirt, standing on his heel, standing on his toes, trash-talking, saying all manner of stuff to that striker, just to throw them off their game. And we all remember when it eventually led to just chaos at Old Trafford. Van Nistelrooy would try and keep his head down, but you knew he hated Keown. You could see it when he scored against against Arsenal, how much it meant to him, that release. And he would always look for Keown. Those games those teams played, as Wenger built Arsenal up, as Ferguson's side kind of ascended to the pinnacle, which was the 1999 treble, the battles between those teams, and then on after that, 2000, 2001, 2003, even looking at the game at Old Trafford when United ended Arsenal's unbeaten run, just the ferociousness of those games, the the sheer hatred for each other that the teams had. Ashley Cole against Cristiano Ronaldo was another absolutely belting 1v1 that you used to get really excited for weeks ahead of time. Because Cristiano was highly, highly rated, obviously, massively hyped, would have flashes of absolute brilliance and in certain games would absolutely tear the opposition apart. He had this raw pace as well that was really unique because he has such a strange running style. He looks like a sprinter, which most footballers don't sprint the way he sprints. 
And he could just burn past people, but he couldn't burn past Ashley Cole. Ashley Cole could match him stride for stride. And Ashley Cole was also just a great individual defender and a great footballer. Those kind of battles within a game that you would look forward to, like when the season fixtures came out, my memory of it is that, first of all, as a Liverpool fan, you'd look at the Liverpool fixtures, you'd look for where Liverpool were playing United and where they're playing Everton, and that was fine. And then you'd look for where United were playing Arsenal. You'd look for those two games. When the draws for the Cups were being made, you were keeping your fingers crossed for United Arsenal because the build-up would just be so intense. The managers would be going at each other. You'd have comments from the players. The games would be played with this intensity. Even even on the day pre-game, the intensity was just amazing. Everybody's seen the video of Keane and Vieira in the tunnel at, at Highbury. Everybody's seen all the different clips of the two of them kicking lumps out of each other and not caring. Not caring that they were going to get hurt. Not caring that the referee might call them to one side. Whatever it took to win the game, those lads were willing to do. And this was back, obviously, in an era where there was far more physicality in football. You could actually defend on a fair foothold there wasn't nowadays the rules are so badly skewed from a physicality point of view to favor the attacking team that when i look at you know messi and ronaldo scoring all these goals yeah it's tremendous but you're not doing that in the 90s and 2000s you're just not neither of them not even messi who may well be the greatest player ever sure he'd get 30, 35 goals a season. He's not getting 60. He's just not. It's not happening. Defenders would boot him into the stands if he was trying to do that back then. Cristiano would be the same. He got cut in half. Cristiano, early Cristiano United, got regularly put in his backside and wasn't nearly as effective until the rules all started to change to make things better for the attack whether it was down to people complaining or not about how rough the game had become i don't know but if if they thought that was rough you go and watch stuff in the 70s and 80s but that rivalry when you think of like wenger arriving at arsenal to replace bruce Rioch, none of us had heard of him he'd managed at Monaco, he'd gone to japan Unless you were in the game or you had followed French football or or Japanese football, you didn't know who Arsene Wenger was because the internet wasn't around. You didn't have access to go on Wikipedia or you know to Google you know, who's Arsene Wenger, whatever. Arsenal fans had no idea. The headlines in the newspapers were Arsene who. Even the journalists didn't know who he was. But he came in, United were clearly clearly the top team at that point. Up to that point, I think they'd won four league titles. Blackburn had won the other. And the rivals had been Villa for a little while. 
a little bit of Sheffield United in there, Blackburn, Newcastle were, were the team that looked like they could win the league and then obviously famously threw it away after been 12 points clear. Wenger came in and he knew that United were the team to beat. And he immediately set about getting physicality into the middle of the field and getting pace out wide. And trying to match United at their own game because United had incredible physicality in the centre midfield with Roy Keane and previously Paul Ince and they had that pace out wide in Ryan Giggs. United had a great defence. Arsenal had a great defence. Wenger did inherit Dixon, Keown and Bold, Adams and uh, Nigel Winterburn, plus David Seaman. He, had, he was very lucky in that he inherited that. So that's the basis to build off. But he would go and add to that. Vieira, then Petit, Overmars. Burkamp was already there having arrived. David Platt was already there having arrived the previous summer. Uh, Ian Wright was there, but you know he would have to bring in Anelka. And then when Anelka forced his way out, he brought in Henri. When Overmars left, he, he brought in Robert Perez. When Petit br- left, he brought in Gilberto Silva. Physicality, that ability to match United. That's what they did. They went toe-to-toe with United. But Wenger was a better tactician than Ferguson, so he would try and gain that tactical edge. We'll match you at what you're great at, and then we're going to have this little bit extra. Ferguson knew that. Ferguson saw him as a threat very, very quickly. And there's a clip that went around on social media yesterday about where where Ferguson says, you know, he's, he's been in Japan. Maybe he doesn't know how things work over here. But it was very clear Ferguson knew Wenger was a threat to his dominance of English football. And it just built and built and built from there. Now, I know that the pair of them will have respect for each other, that they'll view each other, you know, as as legends of the game and whatever else. And they'll know as competitors, you know, that other guy drove me to succeed. Ferguson always really needed somebody to drive him. First, it was Kenny Dalglish because Kenny was at Liverpool. And then he was at Blackburn. Then it was Kevin Keegan that he kind of focused in on. And then it was Wenger for a long time. And even when Mourinho came along and Chelsea became a dominant force, Ferguson's real rivalry was always with Wenger. Mourinho tried desperately to get into the middle of it. And Mourinho-Wenger, well, it was almost bullying at one point because Wenger just, had no time for Mourinho, didn't like the brashness. I think he respected Ferguson because Ferguson carried himself in a more respectful way. Ferguson would say outlandish things, but he would say it in a, he had this respectful air about him, whereas Mourinho was seen as, as arrogant. Great teams, multiple teams for both sides. Obviously, Wenger rebuilt Arsenal. Brought in the likes of Campbell, Loren, Ashley Cole, came through the academy. That defence changed. Ferguson would would rebuild United a couple of different times. Great battles between the two sides at Highbury, which was a phenomenal stadium, and at Old Trafford. It was clear the players didn't like each other. It was clear the managers didn't like each other. And like I say, you can respect each other without liking each other. 
But the build up to those games and then the intensity that they were played at. We'll never see a rivalry like that again in the Premier League where two teams just go head to head for the better part of a decade. Now, Arsenal had started to fall off a little bit. Once the planning stages for the stadium went ahead, money started to become tighter. Wenger was working with much stricter constraints while Ferguson was you know, free to spend whatever he wanted because United was a, a money-making machine. But even in the later years, you could tell there was always... they. They wanted that rivalry to still be there. It wasn't because United were just a much better team and they walloped Arsenal a couple of times. And the rivalry sort of ended when Wenger gave in and sold Van Persie to to Ferguson. But the referee had stopped the fight before that. Arsenal hadn't been capable of carrying that on. Benitez sort of became the one that Ferguson zeroed in on from probably 07 until Rafa left Liverpool. And then he just got obsessed with Man City, obviously, because City had so much money and Ferguson had always viewed them as the small neighbour. You'll likely not see two managers at two big clubs have such autonomy have their their hands and their fingerprints all over their clubs top to bottom for such long periods of time at the same time as we saw with those two. Like to stay at a Manchester United for the better part of 30 years, to stay at an Arsenal for 20 years, it's just, it's incredible. Like the mental fortitude you'd need to do that, the, the energy you'd need to do it because those jobs would be exhausting. We look around the Premier League. Now, I think Sean Dyche is the longest-serving manager in the Premier League, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, it's an impressive feat from Sean Dyche, but it's at Burnley, where the pressure, the expectations is not the same as it is at Arsenal at United. And, you know, he'll approach 10 years there next year. But we're talking double that for Wenger, almost triple it for Ferguson, competing at the highest level expectations to win every single season. Somebody needs to write the definitive book on the rivalry or maybe a series. You might have to do it in different parts. Like, say, do 96 to to, to 99. That one would end with United winning the treble. When Arsenal came second in the league, beating the FA Cup, a lot of people have said if if Arsenal beat them in the, including United players, if Arsenal beat them in the FA Cup semi-final, when Giggs scores the wonder goal, Arsenal probably go on and win the league. So there's there's your first verse. Then you'd have two thousand up until. The invincible season. There's your second, your second verse, and then you could do one after it. The rivalry wasn't the same from, like I say, it's it was pretty intense up until about 06. and then it kind of drifts and fades away. 
but you could cover most of that last decade, you know, the nine years between then and when Ferguson retires in one book. Someone needs to do this. There needs to be a definitive documenting of that rivalry because there's so much stuff that went on, on and off the field. You know, even down to stupid things like Ashley Cole hitting Ferguson with a slice of pizza or whatever it was, or was it Cesc Fabregas that threw it? All these different things. The different players that Ferguson tried to buy from Arsenal over the years just to wind Wenger up. The players they stole from under each other's noses. You'd have to sit sit down with both of them and try and pick their brains on it. Whether or not they'd be willing to repeat a lot of the stuff that got said in private at the time, I don't know. You'd probably need to get other people off the record just to get quotes and such. But, I mean, there's so much there that could be dug into. And, and we don't have that now. We don't have a rivalry like that. I mean, Pep and Klopp isn't like that. Chelsea changed manager too frequently for that to happen. And that's what made it so special was all those factors being in place for so long. The managers, how good the teams were. Like To remain good in the Premier League, as long as United did, will never be replicated. To do it as long as Arsenal were is incredibly tough. I mean, City and Chelsea, you can argue, have done it, but They've done it by spending insane amounts of money. Wenger didn't spend massive amounts of money. He's very frugal with his cash all the time. He spent when he needed to. He had a great success record in the transfer market in those early years because he would only buy what he needed. Then he couldn't buy anything. Then he started having to scrape around by dross, (laughs) to use a Jamie O'Hara phrase. but. Amazing. Just incredible to to look back and think back on that. And someone needs to document it in, in one way or another. You, either as a book or as like a... I don't know if anyone's seen any of the 30 for 30 uh, doc, sports documentaries that, the, um, that ESPN have done or The Last Dance, things like that. Do it as a, a documentary series. You could do 10 parts easily. Do one per year, easily. The archive footage is all there from Sky. You wouldn't have a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff, but you could sit down with the players. I'm sure most of them would be happy to sit down and and reminisce. I'm sure Ferguson and, and Wenger would be happy to sit down. And we should, if it's going to be done, it should be done soon because, I, I mean, they're not getting any younger, you know, and Ferguson's already had one massive health scare, and thankfully he pulled through that, but you just don't know. I miss those days. I miss the days of that kind of rivalry. I miss that kind of football. You know, I I miss watching midfielders dominate games from a technical point of view and a physical point of view. I miss games where referees weren't the centre of attention and weren't trying to make themselves the centre of attention. And this is not to say the referees were much better back then. They weren't. They were a bit better. They weren't much better. But they didn't try and be the centre of attention. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The Premier League will always be better when Arsenal and United are really good. United are good now. They're not really good. They've got a bad manager. Arsenal are average. They've got a bad manager. The Premier League is a better product when those two teams are really strong. 
And, you know, obviously when Liverpool, Chelsea and, and, and City and Spurs, I don't really count that. They've never won it. They've never really come close to winning it. The year they finished third behind Leicester, they were close for a while, but they're not really in that mix. It's, it's those other five. And I, I would like to see Arsenal get back to that level and put themselves back in that mix. And maybe it happens. It won't happen under Edu and, and Arteta, but you know that rivalry, and I've talked a lot about United and Arsenal over the last few months, and it just has me thinking. I saw Chris Winterburn on, on Twitter mention the the rivalry, and it really got me thinking last night just about how much how much enjoyment you got as a neutral observing that rivalry. I and the other the other problem with it now would be that social media would ruin it because you'd have too many kids on social media talking absolute bobbins about things that aren't real, things that don't exist. This player is clear of that player. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, very quickly before I finish up, uh, the Glazers are to sell 9.5 million shares in Manchester United valued at 137 million, rinsing more money out of the club to make up for having to had to spend some money in the summer. Um, Derby County details of their debt is coming out, obviously, as they go through administration. They owe 15 million to MSD Holdings. I believe that's Michael Dell. Um, Michael Dell, this group, MSD Holdings, they have lent money to a lot of teams over the last couple of years at very high interest rates. So... MSD says it has loan investments in four UK football clubs at a cost of 153, excuse me, 153 million. 15 million of which is Derby. In addition to this, Derby are known to owe HMRC in excess of 20 million. Plus significant sums to other football creditors, including Philip Koku, the former manager who didn't get his full payoff, Richard Kyo, who successfully sued the club somehow. I don't know how he was able to sue the club. He was sacked for breach of contract because he got leery and had a few too many drinks and crashed his car. Um, and Arsenal, who they owe almost eight million to for Christian Beliak. So strange. Derby are in big trouble. Like all told, there's got to be close to 50 million in debt. They don't have, and they've already sold the stadium, remember. Now they sold it to the owner, but the club can't now sell it to try and make up for some of this money. They can't sell it to pay off their debts. You know, you could look at a situation, maybe the local council could buy it off them and Derby could rent it back from them. That can't happen now. Really tough to see um, what's going on there and keep an eye on it, but it doesn't look good. Hopefully somebody can come in with some cash quite soon. Right, we'll finish up with the gossip and we're done. Germany and Chelsea defender Antonio Rudiger 
said he says he does not allow himself to get distracted by rumors linking him to the likes of Bayern Munich. With Rudiger's contract due to expire next summer, Chelsea boss Thomas Tuchel is keen for the centre half to sign a new deal. With Tottenham also interested, um, it could, he could be a good fit at Tottenham if they move to a back three. He's not really very good in a back four though. Real Madrid pre- uh, president Florentino Perez is hopeful that Kylian Mbappe will join the club in 2022. PSG sporting director Leonardo has accused Real Madrid of a lack of respect in their pursuit of Mbappe. If you read Leonardo's quotes carefully enough, you can actually see the tears coming through the page. Fiorentina say Dusan Vlahovic has not accepted a new contract. He's been linked with pretty much everybody at this point. Liverpool are still interested in Bremer. Of Torino, uh, no, no, they're not. No, they're absolutely not. And neither are Manchester United or Manchester City because he is woeful. Um, Red Bull Salzburg want between 25 million and 34 million for Karim Adeyemi, who's been linked to both Liverpool and Bayern Munich. He's having an incredible season for a 19 year old. His Champions League performances have been off the charts. Manchester United are looking at signing a right-back in January with Nathan Patterson of Rangers and Max Ahrens of Norwich on their radar. It is from 90minutes.com, though, so probably best to file that under trash. England midfielder Harry Winks wants to leave Tottenham on loan during the January transfer window. I think it's probably time. I think he could do a really good job for a lot of Premier League clubs, but unfortunately, his skill set and Heusberg's skill set overlap too much and you can only really play one at a time. Juventus are preparing to part with Weston McKenney, who is wanted by Tottenham and West Ham. He's a good player. I do like Weston McKenney. I'm surprised Juventus are going to bin him off so quickly. I know he's not a starter for them. Maybe not good enough to start for them, but he could be a very useful squad player. Maybe they're short of cash, though. They've spent badly over the last few years. Ajax and Cameroon goalkeeper Andre Onana is ready to join Inter Milan as a free agent in 2022. That's from the spoofer. The spoofer also said yesterday that Roma were in talks with Dennis Zakaria of Borussia Mönchengladbach to sign him on a free next summer, uh, which is all well and good, but are Roma really flaunting the rules that much that they're telling the spoofer that the player they can't actually approach until January, that they're already having talks with him? Southampton are looking at a January deal for 19-year-old Portuguese attacker Fabio Carvalho of Fulham. Super talented, but didn't he turn down a contract at Fulham and wants out? Uh, be a huge blow for Fulham to lose him because he is, he is a huge talent. Um, Bernard Leno is in danger of becoming Germany's second choice keeper well at best he's currently their third choice keeper so if he's in danger of basically getting promoted maybe he should stay on the bench at Arsenal Netherlands international Memphis Depay has insisted he does not regret joining Barcelona from Lyon in the summer um no, I wouldn't imagine you do. I'd say you're quite happy getting paid loads of money to live in a nice city, play in a big stadium every week, get to do what you want. Yeah, 
I'd imagine you're delighted, Memphis. Um, I suppose it all depends on your priorities, really, doesn't it? We'll leave it there for today, folks. I will see you all tomorrow. Tomorrow is questions day, so if you have any questions, uh, tweet them to Guy at Guy Drinkle or put them in the Anfield Index Discord if you are a member there. Other than that, I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.